Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And I'm not an alcoholic, uh, I don't think, anyway. But I probably do, if I'm honest, drink more than I should. So I'm trying to sort my shit out and find a bit of balance when it comes to managing the booze. Here to help me with kind words and no judgy side-eye is Stephanie Chivers, coach, trainer and all-round supporter of anything to do with making alcohol insignificant. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Ellie. Hello. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Now, we do need to say a quick thanks, as always, to our sponsors, Remedy Kombucha, who make lovely fizzy pop that's great if you're trying to cut down on the booze, actually, by the way. Anyway, our guest for today is Professor David Nutt. Not only is he a world-renowned professor of neuropsychopharmacology, I had to practice that, he's a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and he owns a wine bar. <laughs> Hello, David. Hi, Ellie. Good to be talking to you. Off the list of amazing achievements, though, I'm probably most excited about the wine bar. Where's the wine bar? It's a St. Mary's Road Ealing. Right. It's called Pulp. Um, to say I own it is a bit of an overstatement, but I helped my daughter set it up. And it was actually designed to give women who want to go out and have a drink a safe space because it's quite challenging now for, for, for professional women to, because if they go into the conventional drinking places like bars or pubs, they're surrounded by big TV screens showing football and often accosted by drunk men. So my daughter Susie had this idea, let's have a place, a sort of safe place where women can go out uh, and focus on you know, socialising with drinking and also have you know, nibbles and you know, small amounts of food. So that's why she set it up and actually been you know, rather successful. It's become a bit of a sort of cultural landmark in Ealing. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Well done, Susie. You've obviously raised her correctly as well, David. So well done you. <laughs> that sounds great. So not only have you got the wine bar, David, what I love is you're also the author of the brilliant book, Drink, The New Science of Alcohol and Your Health. Uh, so look, the clue is in the title, really, isn't it? But can you tell us what the book is all about and why you decided to write it? Well, the book is about whether you should drink or not. And uh, and if you do drink, which of course most of us do, how you can essentially get the best out of drinking. So why did I write the book? Well, I'm a doctor, uh, as all doctors, from the very first day you start working as a medical student, you confront the problems of alcohol. Most obviously, you know, the first, the first Friday night in accident and emergency is surrounded by very drunk people who have come to harm or people who've been harmed by very drunk people. And all through your medical career till you retire, alcohol is a huge problem. And I spent the first 20 odd years working 
trying to reduce the harms of alcohol, trying to find new treatments for withdrawal, trying to find anti-craving treatments. And it proved very difficult. Uh, so I thought maybe maybe we should apply a slightly different approach. And, and, and there are two approaches I've taken. One is an educational approach, which is in the book. And the other is, is to try to find alternative to alcohol, which can give people what they want from alcohol, uh, but without or with much less of the harms. And that's something I'm, I'm working on now is my sort of end of career ambition to, to find a, a functional alternative to alcohol. And we're getting there and I, I can talk about that later if you like. Mm. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, look, we know we know, don't we? Most of us adults, we know alcohol is bad for us. Uh, we know about the A&E situation. We know about the links with cancer. We know about all these things. And yet we keep we do keep doing it, don't we? <laughs> the main reason most people drink is to be sociable. Alcohol is the ultimate social drink. There are anthropologists and historians who believe that the origins of civilization centered around growing wheat to make beer rather than growing wheat to make bread. Really? Yes. So cavemen were basically just pissed all day. Is that what we're saying? Because actually, if you look at some of those paintings, they're a bit shit, aren't they? That would explain some of the wobbly lines. <laughs> cavemen didn't actually grow wheat. They they, they hunted. But the, the establishment oh. of, of settled communities, which was driven by the, the ability to grow cereal crops. Most people think it was because we wanted to make bread. Uh, but you can make a strong case that some of the earliest agriculture was directed to making booze. That the idea has been being developed that some of these really historic human monuments were actually not to celebrate gods, but to actually be a focal point for um, for human getting together uh, and uh, and drink and, and drinking. It was actually the way in which humans began to break down their fears of each other and become to, and, and socialize. Oh my God! So all this time we've only just worked out Stonehenge was actually an Oddbins. That's what it was for. It was an off license, David. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, it was. Mon- That's what I'm saying. You are saying. What you're saying is that that's exactly right. That Stonehenge was, you know, that, that is being reconceptualized now as a place for massive socialization. So it was like you know the the Ibiza of its day. People came. <laughs> and, and, to, and alcohol was central to that because it was really the, the, the one drug that actually allowed people to get on better together. So, so sociability yeah. is the core of why people drink, relaxation and sociability. Now, for some people, of course, uh, alcohol does other things and, uh, and, and causes dependence. But for the vast majority of people, it doesn't. And that's why I'm quite happy to invest in a wine bar so that people can drink appropriately, safely. How do we know which one we are? Do you know what I mean? How do I know that, you know, if I drink a few bottles of wine a week, I'm not going to descend into alcoholism? Is, is it to do with, what do you think it's to do with? Is it to do with personality or, or circumstance or genes or what do you reckon? Oh, well, all of the above. All of the above. Okay. Um, so some of the pointers that uh, people need to be aware of are obviously if if your parents had alcohol problems, then you're more vulnerable, particularly if you're a male and your dad was an alcoholic, you're more vulnerable. If you discover you're drinking more than your friends on a regular basis, you're more vulnerable. If you're drinking to deaden pain and misery and stress, and if you, particularly if you've been traumatized and, and you're trying to deaden the memories, then you're more vulnerable. And if you're drinking by yourself, you're more vulnerable. 
Stephanie, you obviously work with people who are trying to reduce or cut down Mm -hmm. their alcohol. Uh, Are these stories, these common themes that you come across? Yeah. And also, uh, I mean, because as you know, I work with a wide range of different people. So it isn't necessarily people at the top end who are daily dependent drinkers. I do work with some daily dependent drinkers. And yes, I will see some of that maybe underlying trauma, anxiety, mental health, um, compulsion stuff. But then probably like 90% of the other people I work with, it's very, very varied. Some of it is people... I mean, like you were saying at the beginning, you do. people know now that alcohol is a problem or it's a problem for our health. Actually, I still come across people who don't understand <laughs> how dangerous it can be for their physical and emotional well-being. And they're drinking, you know, a bottle of wine a day, maybe more. And it, they're just like, they'd heard some stuff maybe, but they didn't really know because there's this whole thing about it being legal, mm. socially acceptable. So that sort of people then get fooled into this lull, into this, what they start drinking as teenagers, their parents drink, you know, it's very much part of their world. So they don't question it. And education is not, it's not across the board. So it's not unless, you know, it's in front of your face, somebody like me gives you a book or, you know, you know someone. I don't think everybody does know. I think it's quite mixed. That's true. And actually being honest, before I I met you, Stephanie, before I read your book, David, I don't think I was fully aware of um, how much I was sort of potentially shortening my life. Because, and that's partly because, as you say, um, the government says it's all right, doesn't it? Um, even though I'm saying that, that's ludicrous. The idea that the government <laughs> is always just, it has our best interests at heart, especially in the current climate, is hilarious. Um, but that's sort of what I, I always thought, I suppose, isn't it? And didn't you used, to, you used to work in government, David, is that right? Or for the government? Or you had, you had a clash? <laughs> yes, I was the government's chief drugs advisor at one point. And... Uh... Tell them where to get really cheap coke, that sort of thing. <laughs> no, telling them that alcohol was the problem. Alcohol was a bigger right. problem than any other drug in the UK. Do you, so you And you say this in your book, don't you? You think alcohol is by far the worst drug, regardless of legality, the worst drug that we have available here. It does the most harm in, in, in our society. It does the most harm in all Western societies because it's legal and that means it's widely available. And because uh, there is a peculiar relationship with alcohol between the amount you drink and harm it's not what we call a linear it doesn't go up step in a straight line it goes up in what we call an exponential if you if you're drinking a bottle of wine a day you're actually causing four times as much harm to yourself as if you're drinking half a bottle a day really and if you're drinking two bottles a day you're you're causing something like 10 times more harm yes oh no (laughs) Oh yes, that's a that's a sobering thought. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, goodness me. So what? What? So wasn't it? You said to the government, "Look, this is really bad," and the government were like, "Yeah, but you know, money." Yes, there's a, they basically said it's not a drug, <laughs> which of course is completely absurd. Of course, alcohol is a drug. Uh, but anyway, I, they sacked me for saying that. But of course, the argument's been won, and now everyone accepts alcohol's a drug. And uh, what we need to do is, as you say, educate people about how to use this drug sensibly. And uh, and that's what my book tries to do. Frankly, it uh, it fills in the gap there. One of the problems with alcohol being such a large uh, generator of tax income is that governments become rather enslaved to the drinks industry, and the drinks industry is very good at lobbying. But um, they overlook the fact that the costs of alcohol outweigh by probably about 50% the tax benefits. But those costs come later down the line and the tax benefits obviously are paid on a, you know, a quarterly basis by the drinks industry. So, they, so alcohol does 
pro- provide a you know a steady stream of income to governments, which is why they've always been very uh, generous to um, to brewers and uh, distillers. Talking going back to the harm that drinking can cause, can we talk about women specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, how does it affect us differently? If indeed it does, um, well, I guess I'm suppose I'm thinking about things like the fertility and the menopause, which again you talk about in your yeah. book. Do women need to take a bit of extra care? Yeah, so you won't be surprised to know that there's been much, much less research done on alcohol in women than alcohol in men. What a shocking turn of events, yeah. yes. That's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I'm familiar with female cancers and, and uh, premature babies, indeed, in pregnancy. That Yes, yeah. it's almost like that's a common phrase. It's almost like some sort of structure, Professor, that, you know, is in place uh, that pr- prioritises male needs yeah. above women's, isn't it? It's weird. Anyway, sorry, do carry on. <laughs> So yes, but what you've just said is uh, yeah quite um, quite true. We do know even when we do know about the problems in in pregnancy, we do very little about it. I mean, just 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 as on a very serious note, fetal alcohol syndrome is way the leading cause of uh, essentially abnormal brain development in children. Way more cases than Down syndrome, fragile X. Uh, autism put together so that's that's one really important aspect of uh, of health promotion helping women understand that reducing consumption in pregnancy is, is particularly in the first three months of pregnancy is, is going to have a beneficial effect on um, on the outcome for their children that doesn't mean you have to drink nothing but it does mean if you're mm. working heavily you really should try to cut down well, because we've all heard the stories, haven't we? Oh, in the 1970s, my mother drank a bottle of whiskey a day and smoked 400 fags. And I, I haven't got three legs, so it's fine. Um, but but a little bit is is all right. She said, hopefully. Well, like as I mentioned earlier, the, the relationship is exponential. So less is always better. I mean, less is more with alcohol. The less you drink, the better. But you shouldn't punish yourself. I think particularly the women do punish themselves and say, oh, I got pregnant when I was drunk. Is my baby going to be damaged? And the answer is probably not. But if you persist mm. in heavy drinking through through pregnancy, then there, you know, that does that does increase the risk. So, so if you are alcohol dependent, uh, as some women are, then trying to get treatment for that before you get pregnant would be a good thing. But although Mm. Obviously, that's not easy, and um, often again, you know, babies are conceived in a in a spate of alcohol induced passion. <laughs> I've no idea what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> um, what about the menopause then? Just because you know, I'm a 45 year old woman, uh, Professor. While you're here, <laughs> how does alcohol and and the menopause? What do we what do we need to think about when we're we're getting getting on a bit? Yeah, women's sensitivity to alcohol changes after the menopause, and they often become more sensitive, and it, they often get aggravates flushing, etc. So, if you're having bad menopausal symptoms again, you know, just check in on how much you're drinking and see whether cutting down will will uh, have a beneficial effect. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, again, Stephanie, is that something you've come across in your work? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the women that I work with, menopause is huge and something we talk about a lot. And the symptoms that they're experiencing around sweating, lack of sleep, anxiety, paranoia, depression, they can also be perimenopause, menopause symptoms. So 
it's preferable if they can reduce their drinking. Well, the symptoms you just described as well, I'm like, oh, I've had hangovers like that. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds... So it's basically, you've already got a hangover, right? And you're giving yourself (laughs) double. Yeah, it's so we always work with people to reduce their drinking, have a bit of alcohol-free time if their symptoms are really bad, and then they can figure out what's going on. They can look at their options around medication or support for their menopause symptoms. But it's it's quite hard to figure that out if you're drinking because of the the similarities in the causes, definitely. Yeah. Um, Look, I feel like we're getting a bit negative, guys. Yeah. I was going to say there is a bit of good news for women in alcohol, which is just... There's a strange thing. Is it, when women drink, their blood levels of alcohol go higher than those of men. And that's to do with the different ratio of, um, of body of fat and water in women. And uh, we used to be very worried that women would actually get, come to more harms from alcohol because the levels would be higher. Uh, but overall, women seem not to die from alcohol-related diseases as much as men. And that may be because oestrogens are protective, uh, so that is a good thing. In fact, that's that's why we've changed the recommendations. You, you, you may be aware that a few years ago, it used to be that it was recommended that men didn't exceed 21 units a week and, and women didn't exceed 14. But we brought now, or the government's brought the recommendation now, so it's all 14. For everybody, yeah. More, yeah, so men are more vulnerable to the harms of alcohol. And that's partly physical, but it's also partly that men are much more likely to get into fights and do stupid things when they're drunk, which also causes a lot of shortening of life. Yes. Um, so do you think alcohol might then have something to do with the fact that generally speaking, on average, women outlive men? A, a fact I remind my husband of <laughs> on a daily basis almost, Professor. I think estrogens are protective, actually. Yeah, yeah I think they're protective of heart disease as well. as uh, Maybe they... I haven't thought about that, but... Yeah, it, it, in, cult- in countries like Russia, where the men drink enormously, you know, their life expectancy is very significantly less than those of women who don't drink as much. That's a fact. Oh. Hello there. So one thing I found really helpful when it comes to cutting down on the booze is swapping in soft drinks that are still tasty and refreshing. Like Remedy Kombucha, delicious, live-cultured fizzy pop packed with antioxidants and organic acids. They're brewed in small batches and they're free from sugar and artificial sweeteners. My favourite flavour is wild berry, but you can also get mango passion, raspberry lemonade and ginger lemon. Remedy Kombucha is available from Morrison's, Tesco, Amazon, Ocado, Holland and Barrett, Starbucks, M&S and RemedyDrinks.com. Cheers! Now, I'm going to ask you something. Can I call you the prof? I like that. It makes you sound like an Avengers villain. Prof. Uh, I'm going to ask you something. Stephanie's going to make a face at me, I sense, but we'll see. Um, Are there any health benefits to drinking? She's making the face. She's giving me the side eye. Um, Are there any health benefits to drinking alcohol? Because we've all read the thing about, oh, a glass of red wine a day. uh, That'll make you live forever. Um, I've read a a marathon runner's cookbook, actually, by Michel Rue Jr., who says he has a glass of wine every single night, including before a marathon, which made me feel amazing. Um, Are there any benefits? Well, there's plenty of calories in alcohol, yeah. So if you're going to run, you'll certainly burn it off. Do you remember the Titanic? Remember the film The Titanic? Um, uh, yes, yes. You remember the you remember the scene, that terrifying scene when the the men are down down in the bowels of the ship, shoveling coal into the giant furnaces. Do you remember? And then the water yep. starts coming. We've got to get out of the camp. Anyway, well, so those stokers, those guys throwing the coal in, they were obviously sweating a lot, and the, and they were f- basically fed on beer continuously because they needed two things. They needed 
to replenish the fluid, which was sweating off them because of the heat, and the calories in alcohol allowed them to keep keep functioning at that at, at a at an enormous level of energy. So yeah, I've got the alcoholic calories do have value if you're uh, if you're exerting yourself enormously, and that actually gets back to a thing we touched on a bit earlier about medieval days. One of the reasons that um, people drank beer all the time in those days was because it was a source of nutrients. But more than that, it was also the only non-poisoned water. Uh, that, it, until about 1850, there was no clean water that could be reliably achieved in Britain. And so people drank a weak beer because that weak beer, the brewing of that beer had killed off the bugs. So the small, as they call it, small beer or weak beer, was that was the standard drink, even for children, because it was safe. And then if you wanted to go out and get high, you took a, a heavy beer, which was which was about 5% alcohol, whereas the, the light beer or the small beer was about 2, 2.5%. Ah, uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. Because I, I lived in Vietnam, but they have a thing they call beer hoy, or they did 20 years ago when I was there, which is you drink it on the street corners, you sit on a child's plastic seat, and it's 15p yeah. a glass. And it's very, very, it tastes like lager. It's very cold and refreshing, but it's made fresh every day. And, and oh. it's quite hard to get drunk on it. Although, if you sit there for six hours, you will, you will <laughs> achieve that goal, I did find. But that's what it is, isn't it? In those countries, perhaps, where clean water's not available as easily. I mean, one of the reasons... That wine was so uh, featured so much in biblical stories is it you know again you celebrated weddings with wine partly to be sociable and partly to make sure you didn't have water poisoning. Yeah, well, still, still do. I mean, have you seen finger buffets? God knows the bacteria in there. <laughs> that was a big news story, wasn't it? And and still floats about sometimes. That, yeah, if you have a glass of wine a day, uh, that that's I think it's heart health it protects. So it used to be thought that that, that red wine in particular. It was good for the heart. It was called the French paradox. Uh, why French people seem to cope with thinking because they, the, good, the, the wine was an antioxidant, essentially. Now, that's been looked at in some detail now, and it's probably not the alcohol. It, it, it might be other things, you know, the, the red colouring, that's an antioxidant. It's likely to be the fact that they're drinking wine outside with nice meals and plenty of um, unsaturated fats and plenty of healthy food. It's very likely to be a cultural thing rather than an alcohol thing. However, let's say let's assume it's true. Please, it's not. <laughs> ah, <laughs> it's not. Ah, but here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. The optimal consumption of of red wine uh, to give you that benefit, if there is a benefit, would be half a glass of wine a day. Okay, so. What I, what I say to my students is, is if you believe in the health benefits of alcohol, what you should do is go out with your mates and, and order a glass, either wine or, or a pint of beer, and three straws. And that way you'll get the right amount, and you'll also get to know and meet each other. <laughs> Socialists. I mean, that sounds like, a, again, a bacterial nightmare. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I'm a bit disappointed in that. Stephanie looks very pleased. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, does it bother you, Stephanie, that these news stories go around? I don't think they're news stories, are they? I think that we're hearing them less and less, which is good. Something that I've noticed the last few years is that the media is getting better at reporting the facts. It was probably sort of a few years ago I was still seeing articles saying a glass of red wine a day is, you know, keeps the doctor away and stuff like that. I saw something around champagne and dementia I can remember seeing. I was like, oh, my God. Um, so yeah, I think we are moving in the right direction. We could definitely be better at reporting more facts, though. But I would say that. 
<laughs> yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. I want to talk about the, the types of drinker because in your book, uh, Prof, um, you identify the different types um, of people who drink. Uh, so some, some of us drink for social reasons, some to conform, some to enhance kind of what's going on, um, some for coping. Uh, I'm definitely coping. I would say maybe a number. Like sometimes I drink to sort of, or, or to, to silence the to-do list in my head. Do you know what I mean? If I'm sitting there and sometimes sober and looking at all the dirty laundry and the, you know, um, the unkemptness of my house, I find it quite difficult. Yeah. A few glasses of wine later, I'm like, fuck ironing. Who gives a shit? So uh, <laughs> I think that's me. And, yeah. yeah. It makes you feel better, but does it solve your problems the next day? <laughs> um, uh, why is it so important to identify, if we do want to cut down or cut out alcohol, why is it so important to identify why we're drinking? That's a critical question and the, the way i frame it in the book is this that you should reflect on every drink you drink and determine whether it actually added value to your life Ooh. if you do that most people will discover that probably more than half of the drinks they drink didn't actually add any value usually the first drink does the first drink relaxes you makes you chatty it helps you, you know, have, have fun in a, in a, in a, a crowd or at a party or something. Yeah, I will say in defence of alcohol, that sitting down for, for example, a nice meal in a restaurant, that first glass of wine with some nice food is a huge pleasure in my life. That's one of the reasons I don't want to go sober and cut that out altogether. Yes. Absolutely. So you've done that. You've identified that that first glass is, uh, is really helpful in that situation. But it's likely that the fourth or fifth doesn't add anything like as much value. And for most people after the second or third, you're not really gaining much. So try not to drink drinks that don't really add value because that re- that massively reduces the health risks and also saves you lots of money. Stephanie, I can see you nodding. You're nodding I'm away. So happy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's a big thing you talk about, isn't it? Yeah, and not just with alcohol, with all drug use really. It's like how is that going to add value to your situation? What does it bring? Yeah, mm. so that you can think about why you're using. You know, it's that stuff that... We've talked about that planning, being intentional. Mm. And is it possible to be more than one kind of drinker? Like, are we different types of drinkers in different situations? Oh, very much so. So uh, most people start off using alcohol for sociability, conviviality. But there are individuals who, at different times in their life, start to use it to deal with stress. And, and, and particularly, it's dangerous if you're using it to deal with mental illness if you're depressed or anxious or traumatized alcohol will numb but it won't actually cure and in the end you run the risk of having a double problem of becoming alcohol dependent as well as having the underlying trauma uh, and 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 then there are this 10 15 percent of people in whom alcohol drives a kind of moorishness uh, what we call dependence uh, and those do have almost certainly a, a genetic vulnerability to to, to becoming dependent. Uh, and they, they need to be very careful because uh, once you become alcohol dependent, it, it's actually quite difficult to break that habit. And how do you know if you're, if you're in the, the Moorish 10-15%? Yeah, yeah, here are a few pointers I, I mentioned in the book. Let me give you some of them now. So the first thing is if you drink a lot more than other people and you get out of control... If the next morning someone says, did you know what you did last night and you've got no recollection of it, that's you know, you, that's a very worrying sign. Mm. If you wake up in the morning with a serious hangover uh, and rather than saying, I'll never drink again, you say, 
oh, got to have a drink to get rid of this hangover. That's really dangerous. Drinking to suppress hangover. If you if you start to do that, then you're really on a slippery slope. Right. Sorry, just going through me uh, bullet points. Yeah, that's fine. I'm fine. Good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. One one very useful tip: if, if if you ever get angry because someone's criticised your drinking, oh. You should really reflect on your drinking. Don't blame the messenger. <laughs> look to yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah. Also in the book, I really like the bit because I, I like a practical tip, prof. I like a life hack. Yeah. I like a hint. I like a tip. I like a bit of take a break. I like a chat magazine, all of that. Um, and I like that in your book, you've got a lot of rules um, for drinking less. Oh, I love a rule. Um, the one I like was, what's the thing, though, about, I'd not heard this one before, about using straight glasses. Why should we drink out of straight glasses? Yeah, that's a, a, an interesting evolution in recent years of particularly people serving pilsners in these fluted glasses so that they get fatter at the top. And it's been shown now by researchers in the Bristol University that if people drink more if the glass has is wider at the top. And that's for two reasons. The first is actually it's hard to drink less because it comes out faster. But also people think that half a, halfway down the glass is got the same amount of alcohol in as the top has, the same as the bottom, but it's not. The top of a fluted glass has about 50% more than the bottom half. So, so people are inadvertently underestimating how much they're drinking oh do you like that rule i know you're, you like a rule stephanie is that one of i your... do i love those little tweaks like smaller glasses and using mixers and lower percentage these mm. really little things that they add up and they make a difference and people reduce and they add up because yeah. of this massive exponential rise you know the doubling the doubling of consumption of alcohol gives you the quadrupling of harm and, and that you know yeah. that's what you should always be aware of yeah yeah, that is that is some serious maths. That is, I'm going to have to think about that maths quite hard. <laughs> I think. And so, David. So here's the thing, right? Um, what I I do, if I'm honest, I do like being drunk. I don't mean out of control drunk. I don't like falling over. I don't like being sick. I don't know who anyone who does. Although you can find everything on the internet these days that turns people on. But anyway, I don't like blacking out. I don't like all of that. But I like being merry. Um, and obviously, like all. Oh, normal people i hate hangovers so if i had a magic wand i would like some sort of magic potion uh, that means you can enjoy the benefits of alcohol the fun bit without the shit bit and apparently prof you're working on that in your lab which i imagine to be some sort of bat cave underground uh, <laughs> lit with sort of green like, things bubbling out of cauldrons is that what's going on please say yes absolutely yes, yes. We've got the we we are inventing alternatives to alcohol. Actually, we've already put one on the market. It's a, it's a botanical herbal com cocktail that uh, turns on the um, the system in the brain which alcohol turns on to produce its relaxation conviviality. That's called the GABA system. So we've got what's called a GABA spirit. It's called Sentia. It produces you know a, an effect equivalent to a sort of glass of wine or a half a pint of beer. It's, it's the beginning of a, a, a program of trying to give people what they really want from alcohol with much less of the harms. What, what are the effects of it? What effects does it have on the brain? It has the same effect? Yeah, so alcohol is a, a very promiscuous drug. If you take, take alcohol, it affects maybe a third or more of all the different neurotransmitters in the brain. You, you, you're probably aware that the brain is, is a sort of chemical machine. The first ke um, chemical that alcohol works on is called GABA, and that's the relaxing chemical. So GABA relaxes you and chills you out and makes you sociable because it enhances GABA in the brain. So what we 
we do, what we've done with Senti and what we're doing with our, our synthetic alternatives is target the GABA system, but avoid the other neurotransmitters that alcohol works on. Because as you push the dose up, then you begin to engage with other transmitters which cause problems, like the dopamine system, which makes you Moorish and dependent, like the glutamate system, which eventually it causes blackouts and, and hangovers. If we only target the GABA system, we can minimize those negative consequences. So in theory, you can have a relaxing evening without the risk of hangover. Oh, sounds like the dream. Where can you buy this, David? Oh, well, no, Sentia's available. You can just go on and just search sentia.com and you'll see, you know, there's, there's the website. Okay. Um, and the synthetic, which what, what we're trying, my real ambition is, um, and I've invented it, it's actually sitting on my desk here in my office. We have a synthetic alternative, which we're in the process of trying to um, raise funding for, to take through food safety testing and then when it's if it passes that which i hopefully it will i see no reason why it shouldn't then w- drinks companies can use that in their drinks instead of alcohol amazing i will say for anyone listening i know a great alternative to alcohol uh called remedy kombucha prof have you heard of that yeah kombucha is interesting because that's another botanical approach to to giving people something that isn't alcohol or isn't much alcohol. So that's one of the reasons we've gone down the botanical route in the first instance, because nature provides an awful lot of molecules and compounds which uh, which can give you, have, have beneficial effects, um, not um, not just to relax you, but also to have health effects as well. So, yeah, I'm, the principle of actually trying to use natural products, whether fermented or not, to, to improve health yeah. is... Uh, Something very sympathetic to. Well, Remedy Kombucha is, is honestly, it's absolutely delicious. So uh, anyway, there's another drink you can try. Well, thank you, Prof. Uh, Now, in each episode, we're asking guests for their nugget of wisdom. So this is going to be the most important piece of advice or piece of information, education, whatever you like, um, that you wish you could pass on to others. Um, So yeah, so your book, as we say, drink, question mark, drink, should probably say that, drink. Uh, Your book is absolutely (laughs) full of these. There are about 20 nuggets on every page. So honestly, I do highly recommend it to anyone interested in this subject and stephanie i know you're a big fan of the book as well i am i am i recommend literally everyone reads it literally everyone yeah and then buy it for your teenage my eight-year-old yeah in all seriousness parents educate yourself not just for you but then so that you can have age-appropriate conversations with your children because the other thing is which i don't think we've covered in this episode that really breaks my heart with alcohol is a lot of people don't realize if you drink too much alcohol in one go you can die Mm. and actually for teenagers Mm. and young Mm. adults that's where we Mm. see that showing up more and you know and that's where people don't they just don't know they didn't know mm. you know they're going out university drinking games stuff like that yeah but well, it important. starts before then i mean i i i remember with horror the i have four children and uh, funnily, funnily enough susie the daughter with the wine bar her peer group were particularly challenging when they were 14 15 and they were Almost every party that that group went to, someone was taken to the hospital with alcohol poisoning. Wow. I mean, luckily none of them died, but we were forever putting them into the rescue position, you know, so that even if they were sick, sick they were not going to vote. You know, I mean, it's, it's a huge issue. And, and half of all 15-year-olds in Britain are drunk every month. Wow. Oh. And that's been the same for the last 35 years. And that's why we have a rising problem of of, of harms, particularly liver disease. Yeah. From, from yeah so definitely this this you know i think the book is targeting you know, it, it's written for 
people you know, from 12 upwards, and I would start that discussion. There's a chapter in the book specifically about how you might chat to your children about alcohol. Oh, excellent. I like your use of the word challenging there to describe your children, because that's what we're supposed to say these days, aren't we? We have to say teenagers and children are challenging. We can't say they're arseholes. So well done, <laughs> Professor, for that. Um, so have you got a nugget, Prof? Have you got a nugget of wisdom you'd like to share? Yes, I do. And uh, I, I kind of invented this. Uh, so it first appeared in the book. And it's my recommendation for drinking with your partner of an evening. And it is... Is this going to be a sex never, thing? <laughs> well, probably, probably. It depends, it depends a little bit on how tolerant you are. But let's, just, let's assume you're not Well, it depends if he's been an arsehole that day or not. Oh, do you mean of alcohol? Well, Sorry. Oh, <laughs> Okay, let's, this is getting out of control. I've got to remember, I'm talking to a very serious, clever professor and not just some dude in a pub. Sorry, <laughs> professor, please continue. Okay, my advice to you is if you are engaging, relaxing with a glass of wine, with your partner, over a meal, never open a second bottle. Oh, I like it. Yes. Because if you do... You'll drink that too. <laughs> and then you won't be relaxing over the kitchen counter or wherever it is you might like to relax with your partner yeah. late in the evening. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> As usual, I've managed to lower the tone. Stephanie, would you raise it for us again, please, perhaps with a nugget of wisdom? Yeah. So the bit that I'd like to add is asking yourself, how does it add value to your situation? So before you're going out or if you're planning on drinking in the week, just thinking about, you know, when you get there, maybe... Okay, if I have a drink, how does this add value to my situation or what's happening? Oh, that is that is an excellent that's nuggety. That mm, is I feel one of my favourite nuggeties. I'm gonna ingest that. Thank you, Stephanie, <laughs> for your nugget. And thank you so much, Professor David Nutt, for joining us. Um so we've plugged your book. It is called Drink question mark. Is there anything else you want to plug or anything else you want to say about the book? I want to say that, you know, I'm alcohol is my favourite drug. Ah, mm. uh, oh, I'm pleased you've said that I, because... Oh, buddy, Ellie. I've got, I've got a new drinking buddy. Yeah. It's already been worth doing this podcast. <laughs> no, it's your... I love that. Thanks. Thanks for saying that, Prof. But I'd like people to use it as, you know, optimally because it can be an enormously powerful way of helping people get together and socialise and... and uh, get engaged and, and celebrate but you know it, it, it often it, you know it's um it's misused so if you mm. if you can plot the right path then mm. then uh, drinking generally can have beneficial effects but plotting the right path is the challenge isn't it and i'm again i'm glad you've said that because neatly that's what we're going to try and do for the rest of this series of sort your shit out we're going to try and plot a path through enjoying a drink having a drink but not being a total pisshead isn't that right stephanie yes please that's less, the dream less is more as the prof said yes less is more oh well that's brilliant there's another tip always buy the most expensive mm. wine you can afford yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay helps you moderate how fast you drink yes. yes well it's a cost of living crisis so at the moment for me that's blue wkd but it's a lovely <laughs> thought it's a lovely thought um where could people follow you professor yeah on twitter yep Prof David Nutt on Twitter. And uh, Stephanie, where can people find out more about you? So Google Stephanie Chivers or womenwhodontdrink.com and you will find me. Thank you very much for listening. On the next episode of the podcast, we'll be joined by Laura Willoughby, who's the founder of Club Soda. And she'll be talking about why community is so important when it comes to managing our drinking and how it can help us. Cheers! 
follow us on social media. We're at SISO Podcast on Instagram, that's S-Y-S-O Podcast, or just at SISO Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Sort Your Shit Out was devised and presented by me, Ellie Gibson, with Stephanie Chivers. The music is by John Thorne and it was produced by Laura Grimshaw. Thank you to Remedy Kombucha for sponsoring the podcast. For more information, go to remedydrinks.com. Thank you.